But I think there's been this fear that exercise is somehow going to be dangerous. Uh, and it's quite the contrary. After that first day, when they say you have cancer, there's a new person born. You know, there's this thing called new normal. I, th I think they don't really maybe understand how much it's going to help them. Each patient and each survivor is going to be experiencing different side effects, different experiences. The positive is that it's, it's never too late. Welcome to the REACH podcast, where you'll hear from researchers, doctors and patients themselves on how exercise, nutrition and lifestyle behaviors can reduce cancer risk and improve survivorship. I'm your host, Kieran Fairman. This week's episode of the REACH podcast is sponsored by the Lamstrom Foundation, which is a non-profit organization founded by Major League Soccer goalkeeper and Stage 4 Hodgkin's lymphoma survivor, Matt Lamson. The mission of the Lamstrom Foundation is to provide difference-making financial, emotional, and motivational support to cancer patients and families in all stages of cancer treatment and recovery, as well as to fund proven cancer researchers. So for more information and regular updates on the Lamstrom Foundation and what they're doing, go ahead and follow the Lamstrom Foundation on Facebook or visit lamstrom.com today. Hey, welcome back to episode 20 of the Reach podcast. Today I'm chatting to Justin Brown, who is a researcher at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, uh, specifically about colorectal cancer. Justin has done an incredible job in this area, and he's really knowledgeable and does a great job explaining not just colorectal cancer, but the staging of cancer in general, and how, on a biological level, physical activity and exercise may help uh, patients and survivors in terms of the risk of recurrence. So some really exciting stuff in terms of we kind of understand on a global sense that, that physical activity can improve quality of life, can improve physical function. And now we're starting to move into the biological realm and see how exercise can actually help on that level. So really cool stuff Justin's got going on. And then kind of obviously towards the end, we also talk about some considerations for working with this population, especially with ostomy bags, which is a problem that a lot of colorectal cancers deal with. So we kind of touch on how to modify exercise around that. And again, really reinforce this idea that these modifications or these these considerations for working with cancer patients, survivors, the things that they experience having gone through treatment are not barriers to exercise they're just modifications and things you have to consider when you're prescribing exercise and things that you can kind of put your head to and work around so again thanks a lot to justin for taking the time i know he's a really busy dude and uh, he gave us a great chat so i'll just get straight to the interview enjoy it all right justin so listen i really appreciate you taking the time to to chat to us today i know you're a very busy man and um you know, I followed your work for quite some time, but I was really interested in in your presentation you gave at ACSM because I think it's a uh, uh, colorectal cancer is a really important area of research, and and you've been kind of leading the forefront in in a lot of the research there. So um, I kind of want to focus on that a lot in this week's episode. But before we get to kind of the exercise and all that type of stuff, I want you to kind of chat a little bit about uh, colorectal cancer itself who gets it, you know, what it is, what the treatment looks like and things like that. Yeah, so we know that colorectal cancer is the third most common cancer in the United States, um, both among men and women. Um, and it's the uh, third most common reason that people die from cancer. Uh, and so it's a very common cancer and we have gotten much better at uh, treating the cancer and curing the cancer so that people are living longer and healthier lives. Um, but many challenges uh, do exist. So we know that uh, cancer in general is really a disease of aging. Um, and the average age at which somebody in the United States is diagnosed with a colorectal cancer um, is about 70. Um, so many of these people that are diagnosed are fairly older. Um, however, there is a, a kind of a rising observation that younger people, particularly those under the age of maybe 45 or 50, um, are experiencing an increased rate of developing colorectal cancer. We really don't know why that's happening, um, but some people have said um, it's due to behavioral risk factors. So we know that colorectal cancer um, can be, for the most part, be preventable by engaging in a healthy lifestyle. So by exercising regularly, um, by eating a healthy diet that is rich in fruits and vegetables and avoiding processed meats, um, things like bacon and sugary desserts and things like that, um, as well as maintaining a healthy body weight. 
So a lot of those risk factors for, for developing colon cancer, unfortunately, have kind of worsened in the United States. We are a population that has become more sedentary. We've become more obese, and it becomes increasingly harder to maintain a cons consuming a healthy diet. So a lot of people have said that perhaps that's one explanation why younger people are developing colorectal cancer uh, more commonly now today than they were even a decade ago. Um, so there's been decades of research that has demonstrated that um, healthy lifestyle is good for preventing the development of colorectal cancer. And within the past decade or so, there's been some emerging evidence that a healthy lifestyle may also be beneficial for patients who um, have completed their therapy for or completed their treatment for colorectal cancer. And so uh, most of the times when patients are told um, they, ha they have a cancer, um, it's from uh, receiving a colonoscopy, uh, which is basically a, a scope that goes up into the colon and looks for cancer and different growths, uh, pre-malignant growths called polyps. Um, and what happens is the, the doctor will go in and take a biopsy of that growth. Um, sometimes it comes back as cancer, sometimes it doesn't. And at that point, that really starts the treatment trajectory for someone who has colorectal cancer. So colorectal cancer really is two distinct diseases that are kind of combined under the same umbrella. So there's colon cancer, which arises in the, in the colon and the large intestine, and then there's rectal cancer, which arises in the lower part of the bowel. Um, for the most part, uh, about, about two-thirds of patients patients are diagnosed with colon cancer and about one third are diagnosed with rectal cancer. Um, and the treatment paradigms for each of the diseases, colon versus rectal, are a little bit different. So for patients with colon cancer, um, more often than not, they will have a surgery to remove the cancer, to remove part of their bowel, um, as well as some surrounding tissue uh, known as lymph nodes uh, that, um, that, that take care of that part of the bowel. And so the surgeon will surgically remove that part of the bowel and the surrounding lymph nodes. Um, and that tissue is then sent to a pathologist who looks at the tissue underneath the microscope. And that's really how we stage colorectal cancer. So if the colon, ca if the, if the colon cancer has only grown through a, a, a part of the bowel wall, um, then we usually will call that a stage one or a two. Um, if the cancer has spread to those lymph nodes, then that is what we would call stage three. Um, and if the cancer has spread to distant parts of the body, such as the liver or the lungs, then that is what we would call stage four or distant metastatic disease. Um, so patients with, uh, sometimes patients with high risk stage two or stage three colon cancer, um, after they finish their surgery, they'll get chemotherapy. And the goal of the chemotherapy is to reduce the risk of the cancer coming back. So the goal is to cure patients of their cancer to allow them to live uh, as long and healthy a life as they can. Um, where we are faced with the challenge is uh, the chemotherapy doesn't always work, um, and sometimes the cancer does come back. So that's really the treatment of, uh, of colon cancer. The treatment of rectal cancer is a little bit different. So for many patients with rectal cancer, rather than getting a surgery immediately, they will get either radiation or radiation plus chemotherapy. Um, and the goal is of the radiation or radiation plus chemotherapy is to try to shrink the tumor as much as possible so that when the surgeon goes in to remove the tumor, he doesn't have to remove a lot of surrounding tissue. Because remember that the rectum is in the pelvis and there's not a lot of, of surrounding tissue to actually remove. So the goal of the chemotherapy and the radiation is to try to shrink the tumor as much as possible. And then the surgeon will go in and remove part of the rectum. Um, and the surrounding lymph nodes, just like they do in, with the colon cancer. And again, it goes to the pathologist, and that determines the stage. And then depending on the stage, um, that will dictate whether you get further chemotherapy or you uh, enter a program of surveillance, which just uh, requires seeing your, your cancer doctor every three to six months where they do some blood tests and take some pictures of your abdomen to see if the cancer has come back.
Um, so that's really the, uh, the treatment trajectory for colon and rectal cancer. And for most patients, from the time they're told they have a cancer until the time that they have finished all of their treatment, it usually ranges from about three to six months. Uh, and during that time, patients are faced with a variety of different side effects from the, from the different therapies, uh, you know, uh, ha having a, a hard time recovering from the surgery, having uh, fatigue from the chemotherapy and neuropathy, uh, which is the characteristic tingling in the fingers and toes, um, is, is particularly troublesome with the, the certain types of agents that we use in the treatment of colorectal cancer. Um, and even the radiation therapy um, can cause se uh, severe fatigue as well as um, uh, different types of blisters on the skin and skin irritations and things like that. So that's really the clinical treatment paradigm for colorectal cancer. And my mission, my goal is to have at some point in that treatment paradigm, allow patients to have the opportunity to understand the potential benefits of having uh, or participating in a healthy lifestyle and how that may ultimately help them with their longevity as a cancer survivor. So really, Everything we, we are, we're focused on as researchers really triangulates around three different things. Triangulates around how patients feel, how they function, or how they survive. And really what we're focused on here at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute is trying to maximize how long patients can survive. So we know that uh, for stage one colon cancer, colorectal cancer, about 10% 10 10 of patients will have their cancer come back. About 20% of patients with stage two colorectal cancer, and anywhere from 30 to 50% of patients with stage three colorectal cancer will have their cancer come back. And what, the, what challenge that presents is when colorectal cancer comes back, it often comes back in the liver and in the lungs. And more often than not, at that time, we can, a surgeon can no longer go in and take out that disease. And so in about 90% of cases, patients are no longer able to be cured from their cancer, and they begin palliative chemotherapy in order to try to control the growth of the cancer and help patients live as long as they possibly can. So the real critical juncture is preventing the cancer from coming back once it's been cured. And that's really what we are focused on is trying to develop interventions such as exercise and weight management and healthy diet that a patient can engage in from the comfort of their home that may actually influence their clinical course, that may actually prevent their cancer from coming back. I tell you, uh, based on that, I may as well just hand this podcast off to you. That was uh, an exceptional <laughs> outline of, of the treatment and and all the kind of side effects. Um, before we move on, because I think it's really interesting when you talk about the, the recurrence and, and where the cancer can come back and, and how physical activity can play an important role in that. Uh, I want to backtrack and touch on a couple of points because you, you did a really good job of outlining the stages of cancer which aren't exclusive to colorectal. So for people listening, generally the staging of cancer refers to the size of the tumor and how far it's spread. And so, right. you know, stage zero is, is kind of just abnormal, abnormal cells. As you go through stage one and stage two, the tumor is getting larger. And, you know, as you enter stage three, it started to spread to nearby tissues. And, and then, you know, kind of going to stage four, that's when it has metastasized and it's spread to to other parts of the body. So it's a really important um, kind of concept to understand when you when you're going through the stage in the cancer. Your stage will determine largely the course of your treatment and how aggressive the treatment will be, and then kind of the types and combinations of treatment, which will then affect, of course, the side effects you experience. The more aggressive treatments may have more pronounced side effects in terms of you know nausea, fatigue however you have it. Um, so I really enjoy your kind of classification of the stages there. Um, another, con you, you briefly touched on this initially in talking about the risk factors of, of uh, colon cancer. You kind of alluded to the, this idea of diet and, you know, I agree that <laughs> particularly in, in the States, diet now is just a mess. Um, so you kind of said, you know, avoidance of sugary 
desserts and and high processed meat and bacon and all that type of stuff and um this may be probably out of both of our wheelhouses but uh, i want to lean on you a little bit because from my observation of as we're trying to translate you know dietary research in cancer i mean dietary advice is so messy even in the general general population put cancer on top of that and i'm sure I, I don't know if you've you've seen the buzz about this what the health documentary that's been going around on netflix um a lot of the 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 information that's getting out to the public is just this fear-mongering kind of uh you know aggressive advice and saying avoid everything yes yes there are uh there are papers that have been published uh, by critics of the field that have basically demonstrated that for every paper saying eating this food is bad for you, there's another paper saying it either doesn't matter or it's actually good for you. And so it is a um, it is a very messy literature. Uh, and usually the uh, the message that I will provide to patients uh, is twofold. Uh, to try your very best to avoid what I call a Western pattern diet. So I won't tell people don't eat this and don't eat that. I simply say be mindful of the type of diet that you consume. And you can think about dietary patterns really in, in two forms. The first is a Western diet, eating lots of fried food, eating lots of refined grains, eating lots of red meat. Um, either eating a lot of sugar and soda and, and sweets. Um, and you can think of a prudent diet, which is eating lots of fruits and vegetables and, uh, and fish uh, and chicken and consuming uh, maybe modest amounts of alcohol, uh, if any at all, um, and really trying to minimize sugar intake. Uh, so that's, that's the advice that I, that's the first key of advice that I give patients is try to be mindful mindful of your diet and uh, try to lean towards a more prudent diet if you can um, and away from a more Western pattern diet. Um, and the second uh, piece of advice that I give patients is to just be mindful about moderation. I think that, uh, you know, we have, we have, we struggle with understanding what a serving size is um, and, and servings of food and how foods are packaged has gotten larger and larger over, over the years. And so I think a lot of people aren't mindful when they eat uh, about understanding how much they're actually eating. And so sometimes I encourage people to kind of just take a step back and think about how much you eat and take one or two days and write down everything you eat and you realize that uh, uh, you're consuming way more calories than you think you are and likely consuming more calories than, uh, than, you, than you need. Um, and we know that uh, the body is so finely tuned that if you eat more than 12 calories a day, your body will store that as energy. And so it's really easy to eat more than the, your, the necessary, necessary amount of calories that you need by more than 12 calories. And that is why, on average, most Americans gain weight as they get older, is our body is just so finely tuned, yet there is uh, increasing supply of food, e easier access to food, um, and we tend to just eat and eat and eat. Um, so that, those are the two pieces of advice that I give people, mindful of prudent versus Western dietary pattern and just mindful about moderation. Um, I do not think the data are yet uh, mature enough so that we can say you should avoid this specific food or eat a lot of that specific food. Um, we're simply not there yet. Uh, and the field of nutritional epidemiology has, has struggled with this because um, what we eat generally is so varied um, and, uh, and it's really hard to isolate the effects of one specific food on, uh, uh, on an outcome such as cancer recurrence or developing cancer. So that's why I tend to focus on the more global themes. I think it's easier to understand and there are data supporting the idea that a, a, a good dietary pattern coupled with moderation um, may improve uh, uh, health outcomes especially that second point about moderation is massive because it as you said it's it is particularly with the portion size when you go out to restaurants and you just don't notice the size of meals i mean i go back and forth from when i you know go back to ireland <laughs> you have you know super sized meals back in ireland are you know medium sized meals here and even mm -hmm. yeah you know when it, 
I first came over playing playing soccer, we you know we don't really have buffets in Ireland. You know, it's just not it's not a it's not a thing. Whereas yeah. you come over here and and Olive Garden has the endless pasta bowls and mm-hmm. and all these things. And, and um, as you said, moderation. You go to a buffet once a month, probably not going to have you know substantial health detriments. But right. the the problem is when people are are doing these or or you know having these dietary patterns every single day coupled with inactivity and that's yep. where the problem is so as you said yep. like the the extreme advice is probably you know it's extreme you know it's probably not attainable by a lot of people but by kind of reeling it back in and say eating a sensible diet most people understand what that means in consuming lean healthy proteins mm-hmm. um you know a high consumption of vegetables low sugary crap um yep. and kind of coupling that with with, with moderation you're generally shooting in the right direction. And as you said, we, we don't know what the best diet is. It's so messy that right. in general, we, we, we've got to fall back on these general recommendations. So I think that's a really um, nice way of kind of summarizing that. So let's, um, let's kind of come back to the activity because, again, I think you had some really good points on, on how exercise can help uh, colorectal cancer. So why don't you just kind of give us a, an overview of, of what's been done in terms of activity with colorectal cancer and, and how it can help people? Yeah, so um, about a decade ago now, uh, there were the first studies published that showed that participation in physical activity or exercise after a diagnosis of colorectal cancer um, was associated with a lower risk of having the cancer come back, known as a cancer recurrence, um, and associated with the lower risk of either dying from colorectal cancer or dying from any cause, such as heart disease. And so um, that study, those studies now published a decade ago, really started to change our thinking about the potential benefits of physical activity in people who have already developed their cancer. So recognize, um, you know, now 30 years ago, there have been a lot of studies that have shown that participation in physical activity is associated with the lower risk of developing the cancer. Um, But up until 2006, we thought once you develop the cancer, that's it. There's really no no clear role for physical activity or exercise thereafter. And so these studies um, really started to shift our thinking about the potential benefits um, that exercise or physical activity may have on clinical outcomes. That is how long people survive without their disease um, or or for how long they live. And so um, at first there was a lot of skepticism about these these studies that came out because these were observational studies. So these were studies that demonstrated association but not cause and effect. And so uh, the thing to keep in mind is um, the, the observations from these studies showed that people who tended to be more physically active after their diagnosis of colorectal cancer also tended to have a lower risk of having their cancer come back. It does not mean that because they exercised, their risk was lower. We still do not definitively have the answer to that question. However, um, since that time, there have been multiple other studies that have been published that show the same relationship, that physical activity is associated with improved outcomes, lower risk of recurrence, lower risk of dying from colorectal cancer or other causes. Um, and the other thing that um, makes us think that maybe this is cause and effect, even though we can't prove it yet, is there is what is uh, what we call a very clear dose-response gradient, meaning the more physical activity you do up to about 300 minutes per week, the larger the observed relative risk reduction is for experiencing a recurrence or death. Meaning the more activity that people reported doing, the lower their risk of having their cancer come back or dying from any cause. So that's the dose response gradient. Um, Some is good, but more is better. And so um, we were very interested in these studies because they, they provided a very clear clinical utility for the the benefits of physical activity. You know, when you talk to uh, doctors and when you talk to patients, the things that they care about are living longer, preventing the disease from coming back, 
and taking care of the symptoms that remain from the earlier treatments. And so the ability for us to say there's some preliminary data that suggests that maybe physical activity can have some influence on clinical outcomes, I think is very provocative. And so what we're really interested in trying to understand now is the biology. So if the relationship between physical activity and cancer outcomes is causal, if it is cause and effect, which is a big assumption, but if it is, what is going on biologically? So what happens inside of a person when they exercise that can actually stop a cancer from growing or stop a cancer from coming back at all? And that's really where um, the focus of the research that we've done to date has been interested in. And we think that it really is probably exercise is doing two things. The first is we know that when people are physically inactive or sedentary, um, a variety of different things happen metabolically. So they tend to have um, increased levels of different growth factors that are circulating in the blood. People that are more physically inactive or sedentary tend to be a little bit heavier. They tend to be obese. They tend to have um, what we would call increased visceral adipose tissue. So that's fat that is deep inside the abdominal cavity that surrounds all of your organs. Um, and we know that with uh, people who are a little bit overweight, they also tend to have this very low-grade uh, systemic inflammation. Um, and so the hypothesis is that these different growth factors, the presence of this visceral fat and this systemic inflammation may help the growth, may be essentially serve as a fuel to help these cancer cells that remain in the body grow. And eventually they grow enough where you will get a CT scan and your doctor says it looks like your cancer has come back, be it in the liver, be it in the lung, or in some distant part of the body. So exercise may have what we have labeled uh, an indirect effect on cancer growth by altering these different growth factors, the, by altering body composition, by altering inflammation. So we know that when people are more physically active, their insulin levels tend to go down, which is a good thing. They tend to lose um, visceral adipose tissue, so they have less fat that is deep in the abdominal cavity, which is also a good thing. Um, and we also know that this low-grade systemic inflammation also tends to go down, which is a good thing. And so par participating in physical activity, it improves a lot of these different things that may serve as a fuel to help promote the growth of these individual cancer cells. So exercise may have an indirect effect on cancer. We also think that cancer may have a direct effect on the cancer cells itself. So recognize that when a person experiences a cancer recurrence, when their doctor tells them, we think the cancer has come back in whatever body part, that whole process started when the initial cancer that was growing in the colon or in the rectum um, started to shed individual cancer cells, okay? And those cancer cells eventually got into the bloodstream and they were circulated around the body and then they got stuck in the liver or they got stuck in the lung. And the immune system was not able to say, oh, this, this doesn't look like a normal cell, we should kill it. It evaded all of the um, immune surveillance of the body. Okay, then that cancer cell, that single cancer cell gets stuck in the liver or stuck in the lung. And eventually it starts to grow and it starts to multiply. And that one cancer cell becomes hundreds of cancer cells. And eventually that results in the development of, of what we call a micrometastatic foci. So it's a small little cluster of cells that are growing where they're not supposed to be, in this case in the liver and the lung usually. And so what we have, we, um, in our most recent study, we took patients who had completed all of their treatment for colon cancer. So they all had a surgery to remove their primary cancer, the cancer that was growing in the colon and surrounding lymph nodes. And about three quarters of patients also had chemotherapy. And these patients were on average about eight months uh, since finishing all of their 
traditional cancer-directed therapies. Um, and we measured the uh, number of cancer cells that were circulating in their blood. It's called the circulating tumor cell. So basically, it's just like when you go to the doctor, we draw your blood into a special tube, and then um, using some sophisticated techniques, we're actually able to count the individual number of cancer cells that are in that sample of blood. And so we did that at the beginning of the study, and then participants engaged in different types of aerobic exercise, things like brisk walking on the treadmill. And then we collected this another blood sample six months later. And what we showed is that patients that engaged in exercise had a significantly lower number of circulating tumor cells in their bloodstream after completing the exercise compared to those who did not exercise, those that were in the control group. And so what we think is going on is that exercise may have a direct effect on individual circulating tumor cells. And the reason we think this is that there have been um, what's called computational studies of fluid shear stress. So basically, these are studies that um, are done in a laboratory where they take individual cells and they expose those cells to very high, um, high volume of, of exposure to different types of fluids. Uh, and so there have been studies that have taken circulating tumor cells and exposed those tumor cells to higher shear stress, higher pressures in blood. And what they show is that higher shear stresses in the blood actually cause circulating tumor cells to start to undergo apoptosis. So those circulating tumor cells start to die. They physically can no longer tolerate the increased pressure on that cell due to the shear stress. And so what we think is going on, we know that when patients engage in exercise, their shear stress increases tremendously. And so what we think is going on is that the exercise is producing such a high physical stress on the circulating tumor cell that the circulating tumor cell actually starts to die. And so to our knowledge, we are the first group that has actually shown um, this phenomenon to be occurring. And we think this really changes our thought about how exercise may prevent the growth of micrometastases by first reducing those growth factors, insulin, fat, inflammation, but also trying to kill the individual circulating tumor cells themselves. So I think that we're starting to understand the biology. Um, the challenge with research is the more you figure out, the more you realize you don't know what's going on. Um, so, so we have a lot of work ahead of us, but I think we are starting to make substantive progress in uh, understanding the potential biological mechanism that may link physical activity with improved clinical outcomes. And the goal is once we understand the biologic mechanism, then we can design exercise programs that maximize that mechanism. So if it's the sheer stress, then we can design and prescribe exercise programs that are designed exclusively to promote sheer stress. If we uh, realize it's insulin or body fat, then we can design programs very tactfully to improve those types of, of different bio, uh, biological measures. It's analogous to what pharmaceutical companies do with a medication. They try to understand the mechanism and then they design a therapy to block that mechanism. And that's exactly what we do in exercise oncology. We're trying to understand the mechanism so that way we can use exercise to block that mechanism. So it's very much exercises uh, we treat, our group really treats exercise very much like a drug and we research it um, in the same way to try to understand the potential biologic benefits. I love that. And I'll just kind of, I'll come back to the sheer stress just for, for folks who are listening, you know, as, as you exercise, your blood flow increases and your blood pressure increases. And so the sheer stress refers to, um, that pressure of the blood as it's traveling through the blood vessels. And so that's what causes that kind of, uh, potentially the cell death of, of cancer cells. Right. But, um, just to touch on what you said, Justin, like the, this is my favorite. I mean, it's so exciting to be a, a, a this point in cancer research because 
globally we understand that exercise is is good you know there's there's not a person on on the earth that would be able to tell you otherwise or or kind of argue otherwise Mm -hmm. but the fact that we're actually getting down to this is why and beyond exercise is good and if our general health and wellness but if we can sort out as you said specifically what's going on and why is it helping from a biological perspective in terms of reducing cancer recurrence um it's it's so powerful in shifting that mindset to beyond exercise is good to actually being a medicine whether that's complementary to adjuvant treatment or not um the fact that we're we're getting close but as you said you know obviously it 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 brings more about more questions than it does answers right but it's it's so exciting to be at a point and saying we have all these correlational studies. We have this association of exercise and reduced cancer risk and recurrence. But to get down to, hey, this is why, so right. exciting. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, we we view we very much view cancer, the diagnosis of cancer, uh, as a teachable moment. Uh, and it is the opportunity for people uh, to take a step back and say, maybe I should take a little bit better care of myself. Uh, and to be able to be working in a research pipeline that will provide patients with solutions that they can engage in is something that is just very powerful to me. The fact that literally walking around your neighborhood, walking on the treadmill, has the potential to stop a cancer from growing, I think is really powerful. Um, and, and, you know, the, our understanding of the benefits of exercise, particularly in cancer, have exploded over the past decade or so. And I think that the goal, the long-term goal, is to um, continue to promote the general benefits of exercise in the population, but also to say, you have this specific cancer, and because of that, you are going to be faced with these unique challenges, be that the risk of recurrent disease, the risk of uh, or, or the presence of having neuropathy, the tingling in the fingers and toes, or having alterations to your bowel function for the rest of your life. However, we have designed interventions that you can do that are in your control that may be able to help take care of some of those things, I think is very powerful. Yeah, and even kind of what you were saying about our, our general recommendations, we almost say that exercise can reduce recurrence in passing without letting that sink in, particularly when we're talking to patients themselves. And, and what does reducing the risk of recurrence mean? Well, you know how difficult it is to get a cancer diagnosis and then everyone who's gone through just the the rigors of treatment, whether it's surgery or chemotherapy or radiation or a combination of all the above and just the financial and, and psychological and physical strain it puts on you. When we talk about the reducing the risk of recurrence, we talk about reducing the risk of going through all of that again. Right. You know, yep. and so many people come out of treatment with that fear of I, I never want to go through that again. And we're, you know, I, I think I, I don't think people grasp the magnitude of what we're saying when we can say, you know, exercise may reduce the risk of actually having to go through all of that again. And that's the power of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it's the it reduces the likelihood that you have to deal with that again. Uh, and, and the example that I usually give to many people is I want everyone to imagine they were diagnosed with stage 3C colorectal cancer. So that is cancer that has uh, spread to many lymph nodes but is not in the liver, not in the lung, at least we can't see it. When that person finishes their surgery and finishes their chemotherapy, on average, they have about a 50% chance, if not higher, that their cancer will come back. And if their cancer comes back, it nine times out of 10 will kill them. And so if you think about that, it's literally flipping a coin. If the coin lands on heads, you live the rest of your life very healthy. If the coin lands on tails, your cancer comes back and unfortunately you pass away. And so my goal is to be able to give patients evidence-based solutions so that when they have to flip that coin, they don't have a one in two chance. Maybe it's one in four or one in five so that we can try to stack the deck 
in their favor. That is the goal. And so I am so passionate about this area because when I was 14, my father was told he had colorectal cancer and he had a surgery and he came back and we thought everything was going to be fine. And then about six months later, he went back and had a CT scan, so a picture of his abdomen. And the doctor said that his cancer had come back and it was now in his liver. And he asked the doctor, is there anything that he could do to try to help himself live as long and as possible, long and productive as possible? And at that time, this was in 2001, the doctor said, you should just simply get your affairs in order. And that's basically doctor code for there's nothing we can do. And so my goal is to work as hard as I can to create as much evidence as possible so that when a patient asks that question, is there anything that I can do that a doctor is able to say, why, yes, there is. We have data to, to say that exercising and consuming a healthy diet and managing your weight, while they don't provide a guarantee, they may help you live a longer, healthier life. That's my mission. That's a powerful message. Or really, the, the visualization of the coin flip, I mean, <laughs> it hit me like a ton of bricks. So I can only imagine what it, what it can do for, for patients and survivors. So obviously, you've been working a lot with colorectal cancers. And is there... Is there any kind of unique side effects of treatment that are that come up for them? And as you're going through exercise protocols, I know most of it is, is aerobic training, but any sort of consistent and, and common modifications to exercise you have to make beyond kind of our general, you know, fatigue, peripheral neuropathy, things like that? Yeah, so the, the two biggies in colorectal cancer um, are um, uh, changes in bowel function, so some patients that particularly those that have rectal cancer, so cancer very low in the, um, in the abdomen, will have what's called an ostomy, which is basically a surgically created opening so that they can have bowel movements without having to actually use their rectum and their anus. And so sometimes for some patients, this is temporary and eventually it gets reversed so that they resume having normal bowel function. And for other patients, this is permanent. This is how they're gonna move their bowels for the rest of their life. Um, and within the medical community, there is an established infrastructure so that patients are taught how to take care of their ostomy, how to, um, things they should do and things they shouldn't do. Um, however, I have realized that a lot of patients are um, understandably very anxious about engaging in exercise because you have to recognize that um, if you're uh, essentially you're having a bowel movement into a bag that's attached to your belly and so they get very nervous about um, leaking because of the smell because of the discomfort because of the potential embarrassment that a lot of people um, avoid, they go out of their way to avoid engaging in activity. And so um, my advice is to try to find activities that you are comfortable doing and engage in those activities to the best of your ability. Um, people, I think, as lo uh, the longer that they have their ostomy, that they, they get much more comfortable with um, being able to manage it. And I think exercise professionals um, should encourage patients to engage in activity to the extent that they're comfortable doing so. And I think that um, patients should be confident that they can manage this um, and still be physically active. It is not pick one or the other. We can definitely do both. Um, so that is, um, that is a result of the surgery. Um, the result of the chemotherapy that is very, very common in particularly in colorectal cancer is neuropathy. That's the finger, the tingling in the fingers and toes. Um, about 90% of patients that get chemotherapy will get some form of neuropathy, um, some worse than others. Um, and so for many patients, this is really more of a nuisance than anything else. Um, for other patients, it is uh, so difficult that it becomes hard to button shirts and zip up zippers. Uh, and it is the type of neuropathy that 
Um, many colorectal cancer patients' experiences of cold-sensitive neuropathy. Um, so I tell the story that I have some patients that um, they cannot reach their hand into the freezer to get out frozen food because it'll exacerbate, it'll worsen their neuropathy. Um, I have a couple patients that have large cast iron bathtubs, and when they get up in the morning to take a shower, they have to run the water in the bathtub so that the cast iron heats up so that their feet don't ache the rest of the day. So again, it's one of those things that for many people is, um, is burdensome, but it doesn't interfere with their functioning. Um, and for other people, it is uh, quite debilitating. Most patients, their neuropathy will improve once they finish their chemotherapy. For a subset of patients, probably 10 to 15% of patients, um, they will have persistent neuropathy for many years after, um, after finishing their cancer therapy. And so this is really an area that we have struggled with because there are very few interventions that help to manage the neuropathy. So that is a very active area in colorectal cancer research because the drug that causes the neuropathy is very good at preventing the colon cancer from coming back. However, it has this side effect. And so we have been eager to try to understand how we can continue to deliver this drug because it's so beneficial and be able to manage the toxicity. So for the exercise professional or the patient that has neuropathy, um, for, for that is considering engaging exercise or prescribing exercise, um, I think the bigger concern is neuropathy that's in the feet um, versus the hands um, because a lot of the types of exercise that we engage in require the feet. Things like walking and jogging um, require some form of balance. Uh, and I, I tell people, imagine trying to walk around your house without being able to feel the bottoms of your feet or the yes. tops of your toes. It could become very difficult. And so I think you have to understand your own limits. Um, and for people that do have neuropathy in the, in, the, in the feet particularly, I encourage them to try uh, stationary cycling or bicycling outside. Um, some people um, who are fortunate to have access to uh, an indoor swimming pool find that swimming is helpful um, because it's non-weight bearing, um, being mindful not to exacerbate the neuropathy as long as the water is warm enough. Usually people find that to be very helpful. Um, and there's actually very little data to support the idea, but anecdotally, I have noticed that many patients, um, after starting exercise, they report that their neuropathy gets better. So whether that's the neuropathy is actually getting better or they're just more comfortable and confident in exercising, I'm not sure what's going on, but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter to me because they feel better about what they're doing. Um, so that is another very active area, is trying to understand how we can safely prescribe exercise to patients with neuropathy. Because you know, if you can't feel your, your, your toes and the bottoms of your feet, we, we seriously worry about giving you exercise that may cause you to fall and you may hurt something or break something. And that is not what our goal is. Our intent is to try to make you healthy, um, not to get you back into the hospital. And so it's this delicate balancing act of knowing what your limitations are, your physical limitations, and being able to prescribe uh, an exercise prescription that exactly fits what those needs are. And it's analogous to prescribing a medicine. You have to know what your problem is and then you prescribe a medicine to deal with that problem. And so I think, again, it comes back to the exercise is medicine and we try to prescribe exercise just like we would a drug or a medication. Yeah, exactly, and it's almost a, a case by case basis. Um, let me ask your opinion on this, kind of, as you were talking about the, the ostomy bag, um, you know, as I'm, as I'm thinking it, I, I don't know how much um, control then they have over, um, you know, bodily function and, and you know, excreting, right. you know, whatever. Um, mm -hmm. In terms of prescribing exercise then, you know, things like, you know, squatting, leg press, anything in terms of resistance training where they're really bracing their abdomen or there's a lot of kind of intra-abdominal pressure there, uh, could that exacerbate, you know, any sort of, of issues with the ostomy bag or, or, you know, kind of what have you seen from, from your perspective? Yeah, so it um, it absolutely could. 
Um, so recognize that when most people start an exercise program, uh, particularly those that choose to engage in weightlifting or muscle strengthening exercises, um, your instinct when you lift the weight is to hold your breath. And when you hold your breath, you could do it right now. If you hold your breath, your stomach gets really tight and hard. And that's because there's an increased pressure in the abdomen. And so the ostomy is actually a surgically created opening where the surgeon will cut through the muscle wall to create that opening. And because there's that opening now, that becomes a liability um, in terms of um, having what we call prolapse. So basically the bowel, because of the increased pressure in your abdomen when you hold your breath, actually there's so much pressure it forces, it pushes the bowel to come out of the opening. Um, most of the time that's not very serious and patients know how, how to manage it. Other times it can actually be uh, quite serious and it can require having to go see your doctor fairly urgently. Um, so we are very mindful about, um, educating patients to not hold your breath, to be mindful of the increased intra-abdominal pressure. Um, and my belief is uh, there's actually very little data in colorectal cancer in weightlifting. Um, however, if patients feel comfortable and confident that they can breathe during their weightlifting exercise, then I think it could potentially be very beneficial um, because we know that a lot of uh, patients with colorectal cancer have sarcopenia, uh, and sarcopenia is having a, uh, a reduced muscle mass. Um, and so I believe that the weightlifting can be very beneficial, um, although there is very little empirical data that can guide our decision making. So um, as an exercise professional, you have to be mindful about uh, 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 reminding patients to breathe while they're doing their exercise, do not hold their breath. And uh, until they're able to consistently demonstrate that to you, you should keep the weights very light. Once they've been able to uh, demonstrate that this does uh, they don't they don't hold their breath and it doesn't cause an exacerbation of their ostomy or or cause discomfort or pain in the abdomen then I think you can you can prescribe their exercise uh, much like you would um, uh, anybody out in the community I suppose the large part or the overarching theme of the podcast is to dispel a lot of the myths around dangers of exercise for cancer survivors and the common theme keeps emerging that um it's not that exercise is dangerous it's more that we just have to think a little bit more carefully about it and like you said you know if there's issues with an ostomy bag it's not that you avoid all exercise it's you just right. kind of think about okay you know where was my cancer located what was the treatment what are the side effects and what do i have to work around so you know if you're having if you're looking to avoid or minimize that intra-abdominal pressure, you know, maybe you work around the lower body for a little bit. If you're engaging in resistance training, you start with a more upper body focused program and then kind of see how you feel as you're going through it. And again, it, in terms of professionals who may be listening to this, um, the word cancer instills a fear in, in both patients and, and professionals who aren't well versed in this area in you know, I, I don't know what they've gone through. I don't know what they can handle. And, and, you know, for the most part, they're, they're like anyone else. There's, there's some considerations, but understand that things like an ostomy bag or peripheral neuropathy are not things that will exclude you from exercise. They're just things that require a little bit more consideration when you're designing your program. Right. And I, I think the, you know, the overarching theme of you know, the medical community and exercise professionals included is we don't want to do unnecessary harm. And I think that's why many people are reluctant um, to, to, to do certain things. But I think if you are um, slow and progressive in your approach, then I think that you can actually do quite a lot, um, even in the absence of data. Once data emerge and they will emerge, um, you know, over the next couple of years, because this is a very hot area. Um, I think that you can be much more confident in your um, development of exercise prescription. Um, but I think that uh, for, for many people, if you are tactful and coordinated with your exercise program, um, patients will be impressed with how much they can do. And you'll be impressed with how much your patients can do. 
you're you're really passionate about what you do and and obviously kind of the overarching goal is to ultimately establish this you know exercise oncology as a standard of cancer care so kind of give me your opinion on on how far do you think we are away from that kind of uh, the mecca of as soon as you get diagnosed you meet with a rad onc you meet with your oncologist you meet with an exercise physiologist to from where we are now and kind of what are some key areas we need to focus on to, to accelerate that movement towards there yeah so uh so the hill to make that happen is extremely steep I'm just <laughs> yeah. being honest. so um it is it is widely known that in the medical community um for medical interventions not exercise but you know medical interventions in general um that have Phase three data supporting their use, meaning using whatever this intervention prevents people from having a heart attack, prevents people from having to get readmitted to the hospital. Um, so among all of those interventions that have phase three randomized clinical trial data supporting their use, um, 84% of them never make it into the standard of care. Those that do the 16% that do, the median time from having the phase three randomized clinical trial data published to the time that it becomes the widespread standard of care is 17 years. So the hill is steep and the hill is very long. It doesn't mean it's impossible. So I think um, ultimately, if exercise is or lifestyle modification is to become the standard of care, um, I think the biggest thing is these types of services need to be paid for by third-party payers. Essentially, insurance companies need to pay for an exercise professional just like they would a radiation oncologist yeah. or a medical oncologist or a surgical oncologist. And in order for an insurance company to say, we would be willing to pay for this service, you need data. You need to show them the data. Um, and so I think that uh, uh, the data that is needed, the most persuasive data um, to to usher lifestyle modification into the standard of oncology care is data, randomized clinical trial data showing that lifestyle modification prevents recurrence and helps patient lives, patients live longer. I don't think necessarily has to happen in every type of cancer, but I think there needs to be a very good um, precedent that is set that it works in at least one type of cancer. So I think that's um, that's probably the most persuasive argument you can make to an insurance company that these types of services need to be um, uh, need to be paid for. There are probably other ways. I think symptom management is clearly an opportunity uh, for exercise to to, to help. Um, where they're like uh, you know. For the fatigue, it's widely known that exercise is one of the best interventions to manage cancer-related fatigue. Um, so I think there's an opportunity in symptom management. Um, and I think that the field of exercise oncology needs to be um, more mindful about demonstrating the cost-effectiveness of our interventions. I think by and large, a lot of the work that we do is cost-effective meaning that it is cheaper for an insurance company to pay for an exercise intervention than it is to um, not pay for it and treat the symptoms of, of whatever the exercise would have prevented in the first place. So I'll give you the example, um, not in colorectal cancer, but in breast cancer. So in breast cancer, one of the common side effects is lymphedema, which is swelling of the arm due to a breast cancer surgeon taking out lymph nodes or a radiation oncology radiating those lymph nodes. And we know that exercise, particularly weightlifting, is very beneficial at preventing the onset of lymphedema. And so the argument we could make is it is cheaper for an insurance company to pay for a patient to learn how to do exercise to prevent the lymphedema from occurring than it is to not do anything, have the patient develop lymphedema, 
which is not curable, that will have to be taken care of for the rest of that patient's life. And so it's this kind of approach that it is cheaper to pay a little bit now than it is to pay a lot later. Um, and the example that I will give in colorectal cancer is, you know, we could um, essentially give every colon cancer patient a treadmill, a thousand dollar treadmill, and we could give them a thousand dollars worth of exercise personal training so that they learn how to do exercise. And that would be $2,000 per patient. Okay. The cost of treating recurrent metastatic colorectal cancer as paid for by Medicare is about $100,000 per year. So just kind of on the back of the envelope math, if you could prevent two recurrences with exercise, you're already at a cost neutral perspective. And so I think that you know, I can talk about the different numbers, but there's actually very little data in exercise oncology that demonstrates this empirically. So I think the kind of the next generation um, of research really needs to start thinking about um, what data is needed to bring this into the standard of care um, in terms of cost justifying the cost effectiveness, um, I, designing protocols that can be widely disseminated across the United States, across the globe. Um, a lot of what we do, um, uh, particularly studying mechanisms and things like that, is fairly complicated. And could that complicated exercise program be um, reproduced in a setting that doesn't have a high level of sophistication. So we need to understand how we can simplify things, but be able to maintain efficacy ultimately so that we can make this the standard of care. Yeah, we we certainly have a, a long road ahead of us, all right. And the the idea of the, the cost effectiveness is just a recurrent theme among everyone I talk to and and you know the the biological effects are really exciting for us and for for the medical community but ultimately it comes down to the dollar sign you know and and uh, you know it, it can be frustrating but certainly i think there's a lot of things we've got going on in the meantime um but anyway i don't i don't want to take up too much of your time and i hate making general sweeping recommendations but i'm going to ask you to make a general sweeping recommendation if you know colorectal cancers or patients or survivors are listening to this um what sort of advice do you have for them in terms of starting an exercise program what they can do you know things to consider we've talked a lot about a lot of it but kind of give us a little you know your your elevator pitch of exercise yeah so i think colorectal cancer survivors should um do as much activity as they are comfortable doing um, I think that the idea of start low and progress slow is a good mantra to keep in mind. Um, uh, at the end of the day, I would hope that all patients try their very best to avoid inactivity. So even doing a little bit can go a long way. Um, I think that if you are unsure or uncertain where to start, uh, you should talk to your doctor, whether that's your primary care doctor or one of your cancer doctors. Um, and very often, um, uh, the people who are most helpful are physical therapists. So physical therapists have this very unique training in that they can take care of very specific impairments that may, may be bothering you, but also they understand exercise prescription. And so um, they may be able to um, help provide you and get you going on the right track. Um, there also is the, I will give a plug to the American College of Sports Medicine. Um, so the American College of Sports Medicine has a, a, uh, a specialty certification, an exercise cancer trainer certification. Um, and you can go onto the ACSM website and look for people that are in your area that are certified um, and uh, know how to appropriately prescribe exercise for you. Um, and I think that's the, the that would be my elevator pitch is um, avoid inactivity, do as much as you can. If you don't know where to start or you have concerns, talk to your doctor, um, bring up the potential of physical therapy um, and check out the ACSM website and look for people who have the exercise uh, cancer exercise trainer certification. Excellent. And I also I mean. One of the easiest ways to get uh, information or, or to start an exercise program is to look up, you know, facilities and institutions and universities who are 
doing exercise oncology research and obviously you know dana farber is one of the bigger ones um so people who are in the area of of you know dana farber and and harvard look up what they've got going on and so justin let me lean on you a little bit and and kind of ask how can people find out about the research you're doing or, or what you've got going on so they can kind of get in touch so uh, we know that only 1% of adults with cancer participate in clinical trials. So 1% of people with cancer are determining uh, and contributing to the data that will help inform decisions for the other 99%. So uh, I encourage all patients to talk with your doctors about the uh, potential availability of uh, and your interest in enrolling in a clinical trial. Um, and as somebody that does a lot of lifestyle clinical trials, um, in cancer patients and cancer survivors, um, there's, I'm often greeted with the concern that I've never exercised before. I don't know if I would qualify. Um, that's usually what patients tell me. And sometimes physicians will say, oh, I don't think this person is an exerciser. And so my hope is that I can allay some of your concerns in saying that um, we we love people who have never exercised before. We will yeah. take you by the hand and we will show you exactly what you need to know um, because ultimately our mission is to be able to give you a safe and effective intervention and you are allowing us to collect some data and some measurements on you that hopefully can change the, the footsteps of the people that will walk behind you. Um, so I encourage you all um, to um, to talk about uh, the availability of clinical trials in your area with your doctor. My guess is um, probably one of the cancer doctors will be more versed in uh, cancer-specific trials, um, and they will have the local resources necessary to help you identify if there are ongoing studies in your area. Brilliant. And I'll also I'll throw your contact information in the show notes as well. Um, but listen, yes, just I know you're a really busy dude. So again, I, I I really appreciate your conversation today. I thought it was it was really it was really inf- informative for me, and I think a lot of people will get a great deal out of out of our chat. Well, it's been an absolute pre- pleasure, and I thank you for the opportunity to speak. 